my father had a quirk. I didn't notice it until I was married. Jenny, my wife Jenny, is the one who pointed it out. Um, this quirk was a quirk of indirect communication. Uh, in other words, my dad had a problem uh, saying what he wanted, so he would always come about things indirectly, okay? So this, yes, this is one of those Sundays where at the beginning of the message, spouses are going to be elbowing one another, okay? So let me play out a scenario that played out many different times in the early days of my marriage, okay? So we would be visiting my parents, and, and so I'm going to give you a scenario. Mom, I'm not cooking tonight. We're going to go out. I'm thinking of going to the MCL cafeteria. Dad, Sherry, it doesn't matter. Hey, did you see the coupon in the paper for the new Chinese restaurant? <laughs> Mom, Michael, I don't want Chinese. Dad, okay, um, but MCL has long lines, and I don't think there'll be a wait at the Chinese place. Mom, Michael, do you want Chinese? Dad, no, I just think it might be quicker. My father could not simply say, I'd like to go to ch and have Chinese tonight. It just could not come out of his mouth. And uh, apparently, apparently, I had the same issue. <laughs> and you know how I figured it out? My wife actually telling me, you are just like your father. And do you know how I responded? No, I'm not. I'm not like that. I don't do that. That's not me. It took me <laughs> 10 years to admit, yes, I do that. 10 years. So see, there's hope for you today. You could walk out of those doors today and go, I've got Max Vanderpool beat by boom, miles, okay? <laughs> right? It took me 10 years to admit, yes, I communicate indirectly. Now, there are habits, there are patterns, there are responses that I have in my life that are good and healthy. There are habits and patterns and responses in my life that are bad and unhealthy and even sinful. Oh, fine. Yes, that's true. And you know what? That's true of you, too. You are there. Um, often, we're not aware of these patterns or these habits until someone points them out. A friend, a lot of times it's your freshman year in college, you have a roommate. You haven't had to share a room with anyone ever. And then by the time you hit October, there's friction in roommateville. Oh, what? I do what? I do not. Okay? Um, for many of us, it was when we fell in love and we met them and we just, oh man, we couldn't imagine life without them and they couldn't imagine life without us. And there was friction and there was stuff. And there was habits, and they were accusing us of stuff, accusing us of stuff that we don't do. Okay? Owning what's yours. Here's the, in case you miss out on today's bottom line. Owning what's yours opens the channels of God's grace in your life and makes change possible. Okay? So that's what we're talking about today. Owning what's yours opens up the channels of God's grace in your life, and it makes change possible. Now, today, the, these days in 2016, for the most part, I'm direct in my communication. Now, 
In terms of my personality, there's pass, there are passive people and initiators. I'm still on the passive end because my personality fundamentally hasn't changed. But by golly, I have learned that when I want something, I say it. If I don't want something, I say it. I speak up. Because if not, I get the elbow of death from my wife as a reminder. See, you've made progress, and you're going to continue to make progress, and this is good. Okay? That would not have happened if I had insisted to Jenny, no, I don't do that. No, I'm not like that. Okay? This summer, we've been following a man named Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a Jewish government official in the Persian government. He was the cupbearer to the king. Um, and Nehemiah had heard about the situation in Jerusalem, miles and miles from where he lived in the Persian capital, that the walls were in rubble, the gates were burned, Jerusalem was defenseless, and it became a burden for him. He just couldn't shake it out of his head or get, get it out of his heart, and he found himself saying things like, man, somebody ought to do something about the walls of Jerusalem, like this has got to happen, and it became a burden. And he prayed and he fasted and that burden festered and grew. But while he was praying, remember, he actually took action steps and he figured out and he started to ask questions like, what would it take to rebuild the walls? What kind of supplies would be needed? Who are people that I could tap that would help with this project? Well, an opportunity came before the king and he seized it. And he went to Jerusalem and he got people excited about the project and they began. But in the middle of rebuilding the walls, if you'll remember, he got discouraged, and there were people that didn't want to help. And then there were people who out and out opposed what he was doing, but he stuck with it. And from start to finish, it took 52 days, and in 52 days, they had rebuilt the walls. Well, they had a celebration. They brought out this giant scroll, which was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's not in the right order, but that's how I know them. Okay, so the first five books of the Bible, and they read it, and then they celebrated. Well, now in chapter 9, they're reading it again. Only this time, the result is a little different. This time, there's no celebration. So we're going to pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. On October 31st, the people assembled again. And this time, they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. They're fasting. They're wearing sackcloth. They've put ash on their head. It's a sign of mourning or sorrow. It's also a sign of repentance, that they're wanting to obey God. They're wanting to obey the Torah. Well, in the second verse, it says this. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all the foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. Leviticus 20, 26, God says this. He says, you must be holy because I am holy. I have set you apart from all other people to be my very own. Now, in the past, this special place had led to pride. The way the Israelites did it was, we're God's special people, and you're not loser. They wore it as kind of a, something on their sleeve. They were proud of the fact that they were God's people. Now, never mind you that what God had intended, what God had intended was that because they were God's special people, that God's blessing would flow through them. They would be a conduit of blessing to all the other nations and all the other peoples of the earth. But that blessing got stopped up because they thought too much of themselves and they were prideful. Thankfully, God's people have never had this problem since this time period. 
I'm kidding, that's sarcasm, okay? <laughs> right? On this day, though, on this day, though, there's no pride. There's no, we're better than you. They're confessing sin. And it's not just their sin. It's not just the, it's the sin of their parents and grandparents. Uh, it says, as they confess their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. In essence, they're saying, our ancestors, they messed up. They didn't follow you the way that they should have followed you. And instead of blaming them, like, we've messed up too. We are sinners. We're not just mistakers. We're not just have some issues that need tweaked. We're, we're sinners. Well, verse 3. They remained standing in a place, in, in, in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord their God was read aloud to them. Then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. Can you imagine standing in place and listening to a guy read the Bible for three hours with no pictures, music, fog machines, or laser shows? That's almost impossible. And yet, they did. And even that, after it was done, they spent three hours fessing up. You know, a lot of people think revival comes with getting people excited and really worshiping and getting Holy Ghost kind of stuff. I want to tell you that revival always starts the same way. It starts with people confessing their sin. In our history, in the United States, every major revival that has started in this country has always been because somebody had the courage to stand up and say, I have something you all need to know. Uh, I know this from my own college. I went to a Christian college outside of Chicago. Revival broke out at one point. It wasn't scheduled, it just happened. And it started because a professor slipped out of his chair, got up to the podium, cleared his throat, and basically said some, something like this. You know, guys, I have wronged this other professor in my department for the last five years because I've been jealous. He's a sharp guy. He's smart. He's, in fact, he's brilliant. I have actually blocked two of his papers at this publication, uh, and I've made it hard for him to get the promotion that he should have gotten last year. And I did it because I'm jealous, and I'm so sorry. And it was like a floodgate opened, and all of a sudden a student got out of their seat and came up and talked about, now this is going to date it, but back in the day you could have this special uh, stereo thing that you plugged into your car and you could take it out so that no one would steal your cassette deck super hi-fi stereo stuff. And he had had one of those that he would stick into his BMW so no one would steal it, right? Well, it got lost. Well, his roommate came up to say, yeah, you know that stereo cassette thing? I took it. It didn't just get lost like I'm a thief. I stole it. I'm sorry. And one person after another, and all of a sudden, boom, God's moving. Why? Because people are like, yeah, I did that. <laughs> yep, that's me. Uncle, guilty, right? Hearing or reading the Bible can do that for you. Uh, John Calvin, in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, at the very beginning, he says something to the effect of, the word of God is like a mirror. When you hear it, when you read it, you see what God is like, and it exposes you for what you really are, and you're like, ooh, I don't measure up. I'm not like that. 
I don't love that way. I'm not generous in those ways. Oh, I'm selfish. You know, it's, it's kind of a mirror. It lets you see yourself with clarity. Um, now, if your personality type is the conscientious type and your default factory setting is, I'm a worm, I'm just terrible, I'm sorry, I did that, oh, oh. you know, and you carry around the giant L on your forehead, you probably need to camp out in Romans 8 where Paul says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Uh, what can separate us from the love of God? Now, if on the other hand, you have a tendency to be glib, oh, come on, it's not that bad. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. You might want to camp out here for a while. This could be a good passage for you. There's a, there could be some things in here for you. Okay, so the Levites, uh, which are the priests, they step up. That's verse 4 and following. The Levites, and it's a long list of names, stood on the stairway of the Levites and cried out to the Lord their God with loud voices. And then the leaders of the Levites, another list of names, called out to the people, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, for he cries, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. And then they prayed, may your glorious name be praised. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. So they, the Levites kind of separate into two groups. One group is crying out in confession. We're sinners. The other group is, is crying out in a kind of an anti, antiphony. God, you're awesome. You're gracious. You're forgiving. And we see that play out in verses 7 through 30 of chapter 9. They basically recount the history of Israel. God, you called Abraham. God, you delivered us out of Egypt. God, you provided in the wilderness. God, you're amazing. God, you're good. And it's punctuated by a couple of confessions. The first confession is in verse 16. Uh, it says this, But our ancestors were proud and stubborn. They paid no attention to your commands. So they've listed off all these amazing things that God has done. God has provided. God formed them into a people. He, he gave them the promised land. He provided everything they needed. He corrected and warned them, but our ancestors were proud and stubborn. And then it goes on, another long list of things that God has done, and it's punctuated in verse 26, but despite all this, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who warned them to return to you and they committed terrible blasphemies. So there's a recognition that, God, you're good, you've done all these amazing things, but our ancestors, man, they didn't choose to follow you, they didn't let you lead. Now, if you're here today and you're 14 years old, 16 years old, 20 years old, uh, I wanna talk to you for a moment, okay? Um, you are now in the process of becoming aware of your parents' flaws. You are at a stage of life where you are, uh, you're realizing, you know, my dad's got an anger problem. Like, he so needs to deal with that. You know, I move a cup, put it in the wrong place, I get the wrong score on a test, and it's Mr. Mountaintop. And, you know, dad's really got an anger problem. Some of you are coming to conclusions, you're like, man, my mom is so insecure, I don't get it. You know, her identity should be rooted in Christ, and yet anytime some other mom is doing a better job or there's a picture and they're doing stuff, she's like, I suck as a mom, I'm terrible, and she's always condemning herself. I don't get it. What's her problem? Get with the program. So you're at a stage of life, just understand, where you're getting to see your parents with some clarity. Just like the Israelites, you're like, man, they messed up. I just want you to consider 
just want you to consider that you're also collecting some of those habits and patterns yourself. Now, it's not hitting the fan yet. You've not probably been confronted too much, but expect it in your 20s, it's going to start hitting the fan. And somebody's going to say or try to bring something to your attention, and, and you may find yourself saying, no, I don't. Just understand. <laughs> so I just want you to be aware of that thing. Now, if you point your finger at your parents for all the stuff that comes your way, you would be exactly right, right? You know, mom and dad, they blah, 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 blah. But, but keep in mind, if all you do is point the finger, it's going to keep you stuck, all right? Let's keep going with this passage. Way at the bottom, bottom part, verses 32 and 33, if I can get there. And now, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love, don't let all the hardships we've suffered seem insignificant to you. Great trouble has come upon us and upon our kings and leaders and priests and prophets and ancestors, all your people, from the days when the kings of Assyria first triumphed over us until now. Every time you punished us, you were being just. We have sinned greatly and you gave us only what we deserved. We have sinned greatly and you have gave us only what we deserved. They didn't shift blame. They didn't just point to their ancestors, their parents and their grandparents and go, man, mom and dad stink. Grandma and grandpa, they messed up. They killed the prophets. They didn't follow God. Losers. There's solidarity in this. Now, shifting blame is a great way to remain stuck. If, if you just don't want to ever make any progress or change in life, just blame everyone else. Blame the people at work. Blame your parents. Blame your spouse. Blame your kids. It's a great way. You will spin your wheels, I promise. And God, would let you, God will let you spin your wheels until you're 50, 60, 80 years old. But if you'd like to shift course, if you'd like there to be corrections, taking ownership of what's yours is an important first step. The Bible tells us this. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble people recognize, yep, I do that. That's me. That's my stuff. I claim it. Okay? In, in light of what we see in Nehemiah chapter 9, in light of who God is and what God wants for us, let me ask a couple of questions. The first question have there been situations or conversations in your life where someone has pointed out something to you that you've denied? Has that happened to you? Out of your mouth have, has the phrase, I don't do that, that's not true. If that's happened a handful of times, 10 times, that might be an indicator that you should pause and listen. There might be an issue or a pattern that needs to be addressed, that needs to have a flashlight shown on it, right? Second question, do you tend to beat yourself up? I'm terrible, worm. Or do you tend to be glib about your mistakes and issues? Man, you're making such a big deal out of this. It's nothing. Where are you on the continuum? Know this, God's word is a mirror. Regular Bible intake, we talked about this, I think, last week. Regular Bible intake is going to help you. If you're the someone who beats yourself up, 
The Bible is going to remind you that you are an adopted son or daughter of the king and that there's nothing that you can do that would ever cause God to stop loving you or want his best for you. If you're glib, the Bible's going to clobber you over the head and remind you that you need to walk with humility and you need to acknowledge the things that are tripping you up and making life difficult for people around you. Okay? Here's where the rubber hits the road. What can you do with this? One, identify the problems. For me, there was a point in my life, I am indirect in my communication and it's making life hard for everyone around me. Ding! (laughs) This is not good, helpful, or healthy. I need to change. If you're not sure that there's some stuff that might need to be tweaked, you can always ask a family member or a spouse. They know. They know. I remember in college, we had, uh, we had, a, roommate, I had a roommate intervention. On the one hand, I was, uh, I was Felix and my roommate was Oscar. So I was too clean. My roommate, was, my roommate would have piles of clothes that he never washed and the stink was so bad they smelled it two doors down. Okay? So right, if there's a line, that's over the line. <laughs> And then my senior year of college, I got lovingly confronted because people would leave stuff in the living room and I would physically pick it up and take it and dump it on their bed. And they were like, Max, that's my stuff. Don't touch it. Oh, (laughs) sorry. Okay, so again, ask someone. They'll tell you, they'll tell you. And the second thing is acknowledge and repent. Yep, that's me. I do that. When in a marriage... In any kind of relationship, when someone's trying to tell you that there's an issue that needs addressed, when you do number two and you admit it, it immediately lowers the stress level because they're like, oh, they know. I don't have to keep throwing darts at them and flamethrowers and, you know, AC-130s. They know. Okay. (laughs) Now, number three, there's some retraining that's got to happen. Now, the purpose of today is not, not to get into this, but I want you to understand this. Retraining your mind and retraining your behavior, that takes some time. Sometimes it takes a counselor. And, and a lot of times, it does not look flawless. Rare is the person who goes, I've got a drinking problem. I'm just going to stop. You know, I'm an angry man. Tomorrow, I'm going to be a happy man. <laughs> the reason the adults are laughing is because life and change does not work that way. Okay? So understand it's a process. You may take three steps forward and two steps back. You may take two steps forward and five steps back. But overall, it's direction. Where are you heading? Here's why this is important, gang. The world, the people of the United States of America need the church to walk again in humility. Uh, I'll give one social issue that's a hotbed for a lot of people, marriage. Who should marry whom? How do you know? Who should decide? You got Christians and religious people saying one thing. You have people from another perspective saying something else. The religious Christian people are typically doing it from a, that's wrong, God says no. And what the people on the other end hear is, oh, you think you're better than us. We need to walk it out with humility and change our tone. Um, A way to do that is talking in this way. God calls all of us to sexual holiness and spousal fidelity. We don't live up to that standard, but we're walking that direction. 
tone matters. Tone matters. Um, remember, God's people are supposed to be a conduit of blessing to all the nations of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't uh, point out truth. We do. Um, I remember a couple, uh, when I do a wedding ceremony for couples, they have the right to fire me, and I have the right to fire them past the second session. I remember uh, we talked about sex and things like that, and, and they were honestly wanted to know, and they didn't realize that sex outside of marriage was maybe something God didn't, wasn't part of God's plan. And so we had some good conversations about it, and I thought we were headed the right direction. And then I got a phone call that says, yeah, um, we've asked someone else to do our ceremony. I got fired because I pointed out truth. It happens, okay? But tone matters. Tone matters. Here's the deal. God wants you and me to be mature. He wants us to love well, to love him well and love others well. And part of that process is going to be owning what's ours. Owning what's yours opens the channels of God's grace and makes change possible.